Thank you for downloading this podcast, one of a series about body arts produced by the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford. Dr Elizabeth Hewitt is a lecturer in anthropology at the university and she has studied the Panama people of central Brazil since 1996. With Yannicka Vidair, a former anthropology student at the university, she discusses body adornment and identity in Amazonia. In particular, they consider the differences between Western and Panama concepts of personhood and how body adornment among the Panama makes bodies socially human. Let's talk a bit about the, the photograph uh, on display that uh, you have donated to the museum showing the, the Panara women dancing. Um, the women are all painted. They've almost all of them got different designs, some of them vertical stripes, some of them zigzags. Um, almost all of those designs are in fact designs from a different group. So these are Panara women dancing, but the designs we're using are in fact Kayako designs. It's very likely that they were singing songs from the Kayako as well. Um, because one of the things that Panara people like to do is to borrow the designs and the rituals of other people. That's one of the things that they think is a very beautiful thing to do. Are these permanent? No. The black design, which is most of the body, is something called genipapu. And genipapu is a, is a plant, it's a forest fruit, and you squeeze the seeds, the juice from the seeds, um, which turns into a kind of transparent liquid and if you mix that with charcoal and paint it onto the body and then leave it for a few hours and when you wash the charcoal off you're left with this kind of bluish black design which stays on the body for about maybe a week to ten days depends a bit on the skin um, so it's a sort of a dye which stays semi-permanently but, but not for, forever of course the red, which is on their feet and also on their faces, though you can't see it in the picture, um, is paint from another fruit called urukum, and urukum is mixed with oil and is washed off at the end of the day. So that's just one off paint, if you like. Okay. And what is the kind of the relevance of why are the bodies painted for a ritual dance? It's part of what makes a person beautiful. So people paint for ritual, but they also paint on a day-to-day basis if there's genipapu around and if people are feeling good. It's part of what makes a body beautiful, and to be a beautiful person is as much a visual aesthetic quality as it is a moral quality. So when people are feeling good, when they're energetic, when things are going well, people paint as, as part of, of, sort of making themselves beautiful, making themselves into good human proper, if you like, human beings. Um, people's bodies aren't automatically human for many groups in South America. So intervention on the body in terms of painting, decorating, piercing, scarification for some are all part of what makes a person into a properly human person. And it's the body that has to be moulded, the body that has to be changed to make it okay. a properly human person. And what age does that start? It starts from birth, really, because when a baby is born, for many groups, that baby needs to be turned into a human. Unlike for us, where when a baby's born, their relationships are all mapped out. They know, yeah. you know the mother, the father, the aunts, the uncles, they're all there, kind of ready at birth. 
for many South American groups, the baby has to be turned into the child of, of, of the family into which he or she is born, and they're not automatically human. So, for example, after birth, in many groups, the Panada, for example, they mold the baby, they sort of gently massage its face, kind of pull its eyes back because what's beautiful is just sort of almond shaped eyes, so they sort of gently keep stretching the eyes very gently, not, not um, forcefully. And they like the hair to be very flat, for example, straight and flat, so they stroke down the hair and they make the nose. With the body painting, who paints whom and what's the process yeah. around it? That's quite interesting, really, because for women who are, for example, painting these kayako designs, which are largely sort of vertical, quite broad vertical stripes, what they do is they paint most of their own body themselves, the bits that they can reach, mm. and then somebody else, maybe their sister or mother or older daughter or something, might paint you know, the bits they can't reach on their back and the back of their legs and so on. Um, so it's, it's, they paint together, but most of the time they sort of paint themselves in parallel if you like and then they'll help each other out but of course for children it's different so mothers spend a lot of time painting their children and that's part of if you like it's been argued by some that that's part of the socialization process that children learn how to stand still and be patient and so on by kind of experiencing this this um, being painted by, by um, mothers. With very small children, it has to be said that the mothers tend to wait till they're asleep and then they paint them while they're lying still. And how do they apply the paint? For the adult designs, many of these designs that we can see here are applied just with the hands, but people also use, um, for example, the called the cobs of corn, you know, mm -hmm. ones that they've been sort of shelled, you've got some inside bit of the corn, they use that. Or styluses, they make styluses from the rib of a palm frond, and you sort of cut it into pieces and then you string, say, three parallel, it makes it like a fork really, you, you can use that for making parallel lines. What we can't see on this picture is that they're also painted in the face, and there again they'll use a little stick, for example, sort of the middle bit of the palm frond. And what are the importance of different body parts when they're decorated? So right now we are at the case 39, which shows a lot of lip lugs from North America and Africa, but have also been used in South America. Yeah, again, it falls into the same sort of principle of making the body to a properly human body, and the aesthetic and moral connotations that being properly human hold for, for these people. So we find among some groups um, in central Brazil principally that um, traditionally men pierced their lips and um, that was partly to do with the significance, the social significance of speaking well so to be a, a proper elder, a, a fully social adult was to have the ability to speak well and there's an argument suggested by Anthony Seeger that the piercing of the lip marks the social significance of your mouth as the organ of speech. Similarly, ears were and continue to be pierced and again there's a very marked emphasis placed on the ability to hear and to listen well so young children, if they're behaving badly, what people say is they don't hear properly or when somebody behaves in morally dubious ways people say that person can't hear properly. So 
the suggestion is that by piercing the ear, and it's not just, of course, a tiny piercing, but rather a small piercing which is gradually enlarged by inserting ever wider lip plugs into that opening, it stretches the earlobe, and the idea would be that um, the ears are socially significant, they are important in, in turning a person into a properly social, moral person, and so they're marked by, by the piercing. What's interesting is that as far as lip piercing is concerned, of course, people have virtually stopped doing it. So to my knowledge, there are no young men amongst the Kayapo or the Suya who also used to pierce their lips who, who are still doing it today. Um, and in fact, there are Kayapo, there's a whole generation of Kayapo men who had pierced their lips and then abandoned the practice and decided to sew up the opening so they sewed their lip back together. I don't know the the details, they say they decided it was very ugly and Panara people used to pierce their lip, so the people I work with used to pierce their lip but they didn't enlarge the hole very far but they also say that they decided it was very ugly and they seem to have decided it was very ugly round about the time that they came into sustained contact with Brazilian national society, so with non-indigenous people. There's this once again an example of looking at others and taking ideas of what is It could beautiful. be that. It could be that they decided that um, what they were doing was ugly because there are these other people who don't do it and they're really beautiful. There may also be a sort of feeling that, um, you know, almost of stigmatisation by surrounding society, for some groups at least. Um, on the other hand, if we think of the one person who's really famous amongst the Kayapo, who's been very much at the forefront of environmental struggles, it's, it's um, Chief Rauni, and one of the things that's very noticeable about him is that he wears a very large lip plate, probably one of the only Kayapo men who still wears a lip plate, and in a way, in his case, it's sort of been turned into a symbol of you know, the indigenous, the authentic indigenous man. So it sort of works both ways, I think. How's the, the role of different materials as they are used? It's really interesting because, yeah, the Panara use a lot of, um, well, some glass beads have become very, very popular, um, very important part of ritual. But then, for example, you've got things like animal teeth, and that's quite interesting because you find that in the sort of more political contexts in which people decorate themselves, so we think of environmental struggles where indigenous people have played a really important role, wearing jaguar tooth necklaces is something that people often downplay because it's felt that that doesn't go so well with the kind of wider mm. environmental ethos of, of surrounding societies. So in terms of sort of media presentation, mm. people might use certain um, objects over others. Feathers is another interesting one until the early well, around about 2001, I suppose, a new law was passed in Brazil to say that you couldn't trade in feather work of endangered species. So that, to some extent, cut off a whole income stream for some groups who were producing, for example, feather headdresses to sell mm. to the outside. Do you think there was a struggle or a bit of a negotiation of identity in that sense of certain ideas of what we might think is authentic and can add these museum displacing very exotic items, but then there being other 
context in which it's felt that it's inappropriate to wear them or maybe they have gone out of use and then been brought back to assert this kind of authenticity. Yeah. I think that's very much the case. I mean, um, Beth Conklin writes about the way in which, for example, large feather headdresses have become very much part of indigenous self-representation in the context of, for example, media presentation, where some groups who traditionally didn't use feather headdresses have started using them because that's recognised as very indigenous, whereas perhaps monkey teeth are considered less desirable because it makes sort of non-indigenous people think of cute little monkeys being <laughs> shot, I suppose. So yes, there are very, I think, conscious decisions. Um, and of course, what comes into a museum and, and what people use in, in everyday use is, is perhaps not always the same thing. If you think about things that are not on display, and what we, and there's a lot of, just if we look around, there's a lot of ornaments mm. and what kind of clothing is worn every day. Yeah, that's quite an interesting thing, isn't it? Because, you know, what we put on display, I mean, in a way, ornamentation is not a good word for it, because it's, sort of, it's, more, it's more part of what makes the person than just ornamentation. If we have earrings on or not, it doesn't really change our nature, if you like. But for these people, this stuff does change who they are. But what's not on display, of course, are, are for example, clothes, Western clothes, Banara people. Very quickly after first contacts with Brazilian National Society, adopted clothing very rapidly, um, and they continue to be very interested in clothing. I think partly it's this very same principle which makes the muse Kayapo painting, mm. which is this interest in the things of others, and of incorporating and adopting the things, objects, um, body decorations, if you like, of others. Um, and I'd say it's Western clothing falls into that category. It's beautiful because it comes from others. Not dissimilar to how some of the fashions come in. No, that's right. And, and in fact, you see, I mean, you see that with them. So, for example, there was one occasion when they watched a video film of another indigenous group way to the north in northern Amazonia who paint their faces in a very particular way. Um, and the next day, literally, they were all painting the very same designs that they'd seen on, on the film the day before. So, oh, that's really beautiful. Let's do that as well. So there are certain styles which sort of come and go. More recently, you find, though, that this idea of cultural distinctiveness and the idea of you know, having culture mm -hmm. in a sort of political sense has changed this a little bit. So Banada people now have become much more aware of what are considered traditional Banada designs. Mm -hmm. And they've started painting in traditional Banara styles much more than I found they were doing in the late 90s. And partly I think that is a sort of self-awareness that they are different as an ethnic group, if you like, compared to their neighbours, the Kayapo or other indigenous groups around them. So there's a sort of political side to the use of body mm -hmm. decoration. I think it's quite easy for us as an audience to look at changing customs and just think it's a very one-way relationship whereby Western clothing or Western ideas come in and kind of suppress the indigenous way of life. But do you think it's more dynamic and them having yeah. completely different ideas about I th it? I think definitely the, the latter. I mean, we could say, oh, this, you know, the fact that many if not most indigenous groups are wearing western clothes that that's just a sign of acculturation and sort of cultural loss 
but as far as the Banara are concerned, I would say it's exactly the opposite. You know, the very fact that they decided very rapidly to adopt Western clothing is precisely part of that traditional interest in the, in the things of others, in changing your body using the materials and objects of, of other people. That's there's a sort of real aesthetic interest in, in the objects of others. So rather than being a sign, if you like, of cultural loss, um, it fits very much, I think, into a much older pattern of acquiring and of appropriating things from others. Um, perhaps what's changed is the ways in which things are acquired. You know, perhaps people buy things today or they get things from others by exchanging, whereas perhaps in the past, you know, they got things by raiding people or stealing mm. things from others, or you know, perhaps exchanging with indigenous groups, but not necessarily with Brazilian National Society. So yeah, I I don't really think the kind of acculturation argument is a very good way of explaining why people are interested in Western objects because it sort of assumes that you know Western objects are naturally overpowering everybody else. There's no reason to assume that. So if we take seriously what the motivations are of the people acquiring these things, I think we find a much more interesting and much fuller explanation. If we think about the sort of um, you know Western interest in the exotic, you could say, well, what for us is exotic? and what therefore some people adopt in, for example, in terms of tattoo designs or types of piercing and so on, which they perhaps associate with exotic others. There is a kind of parallel, if you might say, that you know, for Panada people, for example, Brazilian National Society was the exotic other, and because it was so other, it was so interesting. But I think there are many differences as well, principally in ideas about what the body is in the first place. And I think we can say for our own society that in many ways our bodies come fully humanly formed. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is perhaps properly described as adornment. Earrings, piercings, tattoos. They don't exactly change our nature, if you like. Whereas the body for many Amazonian groups is not naturally given, it's not necessarily a stable human body. It needs to be transformed into a human and it could also potentially transform (laughs) back into something else. What is that something else? Well, bodies are not necessarily stable in human form, so they could become animal. The, The person born, that baby that we were talking about earlier, um, that needs to be turned into a human, if you don't extend nurture and care and change its body by physically moulding it, and by the way, feeding the baby is also a form of um, changing its body by giving it properly human food. If you didn't do those things, the baby could turn out to be a spirit or an animal. So there are all sorts of possible alternatives other than the definite human. Whereas I suppose in our own society, those are not possibilities. So the underlying ideas of what bodies are, what humans are, I think are quite different.